Hi there, and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories, your insight into female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. I'm Akego Okoye, and on the show today, I'll be chatting with Monica Mosonda, founder and CEO of Java Foods, a Zambian-based food processing company. While working in Nigeria for Dangote Industries, a fire was ignited in her. She gave it all up and moved back to Zambia with the desire to build a truly Zambian and proudly African brand. And she did. Her first product, Easy Instant Noodles, became Zambia's leading instant noodle brand. Let's get into it. Hi, Monica. Welcome to African Business Stories. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So um, so you, you were born in Lusaka. That's right. And then you moved to the US and then you moved back to Lusaka, Zambia, um, yes. where you finished high school and, and went to university, college and studied law. Um, for, for a lot of my friends who studied law, they, they, they did it because that's what their parents advised them to do. There were probably only four careers back then, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineer or accountant, you know. And if you didn't know math, you ended up as a lawyer. <laughs> so I wonder, what, I wonder what your own come to law story was. So very similar. I think African parents are the same everywhere, whether they're from Zambia, Nigeria, from South Africa, uh, first generation educated uh, parents. And so looking for the best and really wanting you to have a firm education and get a job. I mean, that was what was done in those days. And that's what they expected from us. So um, my, my, my parents were very passionate about law and wanting me to do law. And I wasn't opposed to it. I, I, I kind of thought it was what I wanted. I was very assertive. I was confident. Um, I liked to discuss matters with people. So it kind of, for me, felt like a natural fit. And at the time, probably not fully appreciating what the law was as a profession, but I, I, I didn't um, push away from it and I really did uh, embrace it. And so my mm. path to becoming a lawyer, and I, I practiced for a while, uh, was very clear. It was very clear from a very young age, right through university and in, in my early days as a lawyer. Yeah. So you practiced law for 16 years, like in multiple jurisdictions. Um, it's quite an impressive run, I must say. Um, so I was wondering, what were the high points of, of those years and um, any low points at all? So I think very, I was very fortunate and sometimes things happen and place you on a path for growth. So I started, I qualified in Zambia uh, as a Zambian trained lawyer and my parents uh, uh, basically encouraged me to go work for the attorney general's chambers. And at th in those days, I mean, they didn't pay anything. And I, the deal was that my dad had to buy a car in order for me to go work there and pay me something, you know, so I could actually buy fuel. Because for my, my, my parents were very clear that that was, that was the best place to actually get some very good, solid experience. Uh, stay there for two years and see how it goes. Luckily for me, at the time I joined the Attorney General's Chambers, there was a huge privatization of state-owned enterprises in Zambia. And all the work was being done through the Attorney General's Chambers, working with international counsel, so what luck, right? You, you land, you are newly qualified with a very assertive attorney general who, who wants to work with people who want to work. So he right. put us to work. And I was very fortunate to work with international law firm uh, Clifford Chance, uh, with NM Rothschilds as investment bankers and got to know them very well working in Zambia. So, you know, it was a break for me. And that is what led my path um, going forward. Uh, I learned very early about the power of network. I was 19, 20, and already began to build a network with the partners at Clifford Chance. You know, you make yourself relevant. You are helpful. You try to, um, you know, answer questions that they needed to get answered from um, and get, get, just get results. Because you know how it is sometimes in government. It's trying to get a quick answer if you can. And if you're the nimble young associate or a state advocate, as they were then called, you were the one they called to get those results. So in a way, uh, I was very fortunate to work at that time, but also realized there was a really great opportunity here to, to learn as mm. well as to grow a network for myself. And it helped. It really did help. So um, my parents, I had only had my first degree and I was qualified and had done almost two years at the Attorney General's Chambers. And my father thought at the time that, you know, you're young enough. Why don't you take a year off and do your master's? 
And I wasn't sure where I was going to go, but my parents were living in the UK at the time and they were very insistent to say, why don't you just come and live here? So I, was, I, I went over to London and um, was, I went to uh, LSC and UCL. It's a dual course. It is the University of London uh, yeah. uh, Corporate Commercial Law, LLM, exactly. So you could do it at any of the University of London co uh, colleges. And I got my LLM. But I was also really fortunate to get into London and I say to the partner at Clifford Chance, I'm here and I'm doing a master's. It's not every day and um, I do have some time. And so immediately who was like, why didn't you come in and intern? So I started working for Clifford Chance three months later when I moved to the UK. Of course, doing a lot more minor work, trying to really understand the pace of an international law firm, but really, really under um, working for the partner who I worked for in Zambia. And really just trying to to pull up my socks as well as doing my master's. And I was there for some time. But it was a really great experience and really opened my eyes to what the law was and what more could be, what more could come out of it. Because I think in Africa, everyone tends to think, okay, you're a lawyer, you wear a wig and a gown and you go to court. So mm. I have not gone to court since the attorney general's chambers, <laughs> but I'm still very much a lawyer, uh, right. probably a, a very good corporate lawyer. But it really showed me the, you know, the UK at the time had so many disciplines of law, which they're following. I mean, intellectual property was becoming a big deal. Um, in, uh, you know, the Internet was right, uh, gaining prominence. And there were lots of legal issues coming out of that. Uh, always will be debt and equity capital markets work, financing work. But there were so many things coming up and it was great to be in a firm like that, which was multidisciplinary uh, across the world. And it was, I really enjoyed my time, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So so did you go from there to South Africa? Yes. Interesting transition. So Clifford Chance at the time was trying to uh, uh, broaden their reach. They had not had an office on the African continent. And obviously for them, their first stop would be a South Africa. It, mm -hmm. it felt more familiar. The, they, there were a lot of uh, um, uh, companies who were South African working in the UK. There were a lot of South African lawyers at Clifford Chance as well. And so they began to look at um, a JV or a partnership in um, South Africa with Edward Nathan, at the okay. time, uh, um, and basically the partners at Edward Nathan were, were interested in selling the partnership to either an international firm or a bank. Right. And in the end, actually, the, the, the partnership of Clifford Chance never took off. Oh. And in the end, Edward Nathan was actually acquired by Nedbank. So uh, it was a very big disappointment for Clifford Chance. But for me, it just opened the door for me to go and work with Edward Nathan in South Africa. So again, it's all about building relationships. The partner I worked for was a fundamental partner pushing the, uh, uh, the JV partnership arrangement. So I was, I was able to be in the room while they're discussing a possible you know, JV. And then applied. I was like, look, I, I, I can't get a work permit to stay in, in, in the UK after this. Uh, could I move South Africa? And they were very, very open. I mean, they were like, what can what can you bring for us? Um, we are now a, a firm that is owned by a bank. So we mm -hmm. can do many more things that law firms can't do. And that was what was very attractive about Edward Nathan. They were lawyers, but they weren't really working in a law firm and did right. therefore not have the restrictions, the regulatory restrictions many law firms around the world have, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, so you could be, I didn't have to be a South African lawyer South African qualified lawyer to work for Edward Nathan. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't have done that with anyone else because everyone else was a law firm. So they were um, a limited company, believe it or not, with a shareholder. So I wondered about that because I was going to ask, did you qualify in South Africa? How did that work? So, so thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, I, didn't, I had no requirement to. And, and really, my role at Edward Nathan was to look for work outside of South Africa. So they were very mm. clear as well that their backyard had not been tapped. So they were looking at what else can we do outside of South Africa? And being I was an English qualified lawyer at that time, as well as a Zambian lawyer. And most of the transactions on the continent, particularly for financing, are done under English law. So for them, they felt, OK, great. We have this person who is, is qualified, uh, has some exposure, who we can basically, you know, can go out, do M&A deals or finance, financial transactions. And actually it worked very well. My biggest client was MTN. So that was the mm. time MTN was going all around the continent, acquiring licenses or uh, applying for licenses. So I ve worked very closely with Irene Charnley, who was the head of business development. We did Zambia. We did Congo, Brazzaville. We, we tried for Namibia and failed. Um, 
and then later on in my life came back to MTN in a different capacity. So I've known MTN Group for a very long time in different ways, but it was a very, very good basis to understand what expansion strategies really mean for businesses on Mm. the continent. Because in the early, early, mid 2000s, that was when the real push for South African companies was on the continent, Old Mutual, MTN, Sassel. That was when they were going out and trying to see what they could um, acquire, uh, could partner with. And I think now it's a little bit slower or most of the companies have already done their JVs, even for banking the banks as well. So it was a really right. interesting time to be in South Africa and with Edward Nathan. So so would you say that that your time in South Africa and with Edward Nathan were the high points of your, your legal career? Um. I think so. So I would say that it gave me definitely um, a, a, a profile. I think I was I, I, I rose to a rank of partner. Um, it allowed me to sit at the table with very important clients. I mean, um, it doesn't usually it takes a long time in a lot of practices for you to do that, you know, uh, to travel with your client to be. I mean, I, Irene, I was always with Irene. I mean, that was excellent for me. So I think it was a very it was a really great um, opening for my see what the the law could bring, but also right. what I liked about it was that um, I saw the opportunities. I mean, I came to Nigeria so many times. Uh, we did a lot of business development. We did work with, partnered with a lot of local firms. I built relationships in many of the common common law countries, whether it was Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. Um, went to mostly all of them and have built mm-hmm. to this day very strong legal uh, relationships. So I think it was a very, very uh, useful time. So you then went on to, to the IFC in, in Washington, D.C. And I've heard you talk about it. The, the, the general gist I got from it was that all that glitters is not gold. And it's kind of true. But again, I think I should be careful. I think it really depends now what you want in life, right? Right. So I went to IFC still quite young and still really yearning for um, sort of seniority, uh, authority, profile, uh, and also yearning for my continent. I had to move to Washington, D.C. And it's a government, it's literally the IFC is government, right? And you're just a piece, a small piece in the puzzle. They do very important work, don't get me wrong, but it is it is like, you know, the, the wheels on the bus turn really slowly. Where you're coming, and coming from where I was coming from, where the clients that get up and go, was very different in the IFC. First, you had to justify it. Uh, you had to say, was it necessary? It was a really, it was a very different type of um, <laughs> of experience. And the reason actually I joined the IFC was I wanted more international experience. But I guess I didn't right. fully appreciate the institution I was joining, you know, at the time. But I think um, it definitely honed my skills in in manufacturing, in telecoms, uh, also built relationships with IFC. I mean, even to this day, a lot of uh, good friends still work for the IFC and we're still able to interact. And in fact, when I left IFC to, for Nigeria, I remember saying, don't worry, we'll be back. We'll, we'll see each other because I'm sure you're going to finance a project I'll be involved in, not knowing anything. But I just said it like right. that because I was like, well, at some point we'll see each other again. So let's talk about risk. Yeah. Because I feel like after this point, the next few years of your life is is just characterized by some really audacious moves. <laughs> you know, so 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 you leave the IFC, the, the comfort of this huge organization, yes. and then you, you go to to work for a relatively new Africa Finance Corporation in Nigeria. Yeah. I mean, what makes you do such a crazy thing? So sometimes you have to take risks when you're young. I, I think right. if I was a little older um, and my circumstances were different, I probably wouldn't have done it, right? And it was a really big risk because um, I knew some of the people who were involved in it. Uh, I didn't know everybody, but I was also very encouraged because they had money. They were backed by uh, the central bank and a number of other countries. And we just felt we were just really patriotic about Africa. It was going to build infrastructure on the continent and we were going to be the first ones to roll it out. And I trusted. So, you know, you were like, okay, what do you have to lose? If if it doesn't work out, you'll get another job. And I really believe that. And and so I packed up and it was it was hard to leave. I mean the IFC were like, you know, you don't really leave the IFC just like that after two years. I mean, you know, you've just arrived, you know. So, but I kind of wanted to be back on the continent. I wanted to, I, you know, Washington, D.C. was far. 
you know, far from what where it was happening. And things were happening on the continent at that time. You know, you're seeing uh, some of the Nigerian banks raise quite a lot of money on stock exchanges, um, you know, really shoring up capital. You know, so you were, we're seeing things, but I was sitting in an office in Washington, D.C. doing paperwork, and it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So take the risk and jump into where the action is and perhaps naive, right? Uh, not really fully. And maybe that's what helps. You don't really fully understand the full picture. So you jump. <laughs> but it was a, it was a, it was interesting because it was definitely not what I expected it to be. So my, the lesson learned there was definitely fully understand it before you, even if you are, you can take a risk, but make sure you fully understand it. But I was just lucky because I had um, done some work for the Dangote group when I was at IFC and had already met Mr. Dangote. So when I moved to Nigeria and he asked, like, what are you doing here? And he was like, but they're not doing anything. You know, we're busy. Come and work for us. And it was for me, it was like a no brainer. I was like, yeah, I know this group. I know what they're doing. I know I know their aggression. And this man is already really, really big. And at the time he was still building his cement assets. And it was really kind of touch and go because he had an overrun on his on Obajana at the time. And everyone was like, if you blow, the whole thing will come crashing down. But I believe that, you know, this man is going to build a pan-African company and you can be a part of it. Again, maybe naive as I thought, but I, I switched. I didn't, I think the ink on my contract at AFC was not dry. <laughs> and I had to go back to the States to pick up my furniture, which I had just, you know, kind of left in the apartment to pack and then switch my contract to Dangote. Literally, we just changed the title. So there are a few of my former AFC colleagues who just, we don't even talk about it because I actually didn't really work. <laughs> it's not wow. on my CV. It's nowhere. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but it was, um, yeah, sometimes you got to, things happen for a reason and you will always land on your mm. feet. I mean, you may not know how you land, but be rest assured you will land on your feet. Wow, quite quite a risky move, but I guess <laughs> yes. it's paid off. It's paid off. So So I know you get asked a lot, what is it like working for Mr. Dangote, the richest man in Africa? You know, and I think that the part that that interests me or intrigues me, it's more the impact it had on your mind. You know, the, the mind shift you experienced from, from interacting with him that led you to start your own entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. So if you can talk to us a little about that. You know, he is, um, for all his faults, and everybody has faults, he is a big believer in the continent. Um, he's a big believer in Africans developing their continent. And uh, you've, he's definitely put money where his mouth has been and expanded across the continent. But it was the first time I had come across an African who not only said it, but actually lived by it. And everywhere we, we went and when we did transactions, whether we met presidents in countries, he would say, you know, can you see the benefit? But why are we not doing more here? Or why are the people who live here not doing more? They have so they have power. I remember you say, oh, you're from Zambia, but you guys have power. Why is there no manufacturing in Zambia? Because yeah, we we had no power issues, right? So it was it was for me really um like a I don't even know an aha moment where I was like, wow, okay. He has no reason to be anywhere else apart from Nigeria, but he's doing that. And he also taught me about being brave, about um, just like, you know, having courage to take steps and really, really saying, you know, no one is smarter than you are. You're all at the same level, but who is braver? Who will actually, with, you know, keep on going? And more cases, and if we don't keep on going, what's going to happen to our continent? You know, it's almost, it was almost like we have to, we have to get up and go. We have to because we have work to do. And he worked, so we all worked. So we, already having the work ethic, having worked for international law firm, having worked for uh, IFC, I already had the work ethic, but it was nothing like working for um, an entrepreneur, a self-made man, and someone who had huge ambition. We didn't sleep. We used to go to like five, four countries in three days, but it was to achieve this mission. So for me personally, what it made me realize is you must have a goal. That was his goal. What was my goal? You know, where do you, where, where do you want to be? And what are you, what are you here for? You know, what, um, are you, are you here on this earth just to be a lawyer? Is that what, what, what you're, you're meant to achieve? And I didn't believe that. I just didn't believe that my life was just going to be legal work. I thought there was more to that. I was going to do so much more 
for my life, leave an impact, leave a legacy. Um, and that was when I began to search my inner and really question myself. And I loved living in Nigeria and I actually loved my job. And I had a really, really good relationship with all those I worked for at Dangote. And it was very hard to leave Nigeria. But something had been fired in me. And I believe that I could make a difference to my small country. We are a very small country with very many issues and difficulties. But I just thought that if I didn't do it, or if Zambians didn't develop Zambia, who was going to? We, we were continuously complaining about things. But who did we expect to, to change it? And we are lucky to have been exposed and educated. Could we not bring some of this back? And that's what I really wanted to do. I, I mean, I had such great exposure, great network, um, and, and it really has carried me through. And I thought, well, let me bring it home where you can really, really see the impact, really see the impact. And, and I did. So I quit my job in 2012 um, after almost four years and, and I moved back to Zambia. I moved back into my parents' home. Um, wow. You know, it was... Um, and I, even at that time, I wasn't sure 100% I was going to stay. I still had like one leg in South Africa, right? I was like, okay, I have a home in South Africa. If this doesn't work out, right, I just <laughs> go to Joburg and get a job. Uh, but, you know, you're here and you're really seeing uh, things are moving and you can be a part of the push forward. You know, even in, in most countries, you have a great generation of young people who well-educated and are coming back home. And the same, we have the same in Zambia. So we had this sort of influx of people who are coming home and really pushing various sectors. And I just really wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be the part of it to, to say, oh, but do you know that was built 10 years ago by this and this new, new invention, this new brand, you know? So I felt that I could do that. And I moved. I gave it all up. I, gave, I actually gave up the law. I knew that when I left Dangote, that was the last time I was going to call myself a lawyer. Uh, and that's when the 16 years ends. Although, I mean, I've been a lawyer for much longer, but I, I kind of say to my, and I still do a little bit of law here and there. So I still, I'm able to advise a few people. But I feel that six, after I left Dangote, it was the last time I actually focused and, you know, was a, a, a lawyer, lawyer. Because after that, I became, I became Monica um, with entrepreneurship hat on, which also another thing was, if you had asked me five years before or even a year before, I would have told you I was never anything else but a lawyer. I didn't know how to be a business owner. How, does that, how do you become that? I don't come from a family of business people. They were very risk adverse. They were, um, my dad was a professor. My mom was a math and history teacher. So it wasn't that I was coming into a family business. You know, I, I didn't have the background to start a business. But that's the, that's the beauty of it, right? That you can start something from nothing. It's true. It is actually true. And I'm testimony to that. It may take you longer. <laughs> and you may lose lots of money. Um, but you will learn a lot on the, along the way and you'll be so much wiser for the learning. And But it's real when they say that, you know, you don't necessarily need to, I mean, it, it would help if you had props, but you don't, you can start from scratch. You can start from zero. So, so I want you to talk to us about that. So you moved back at the time, 2012, when you left Dangote and moved back to, to Zambia, you didn't actually know what exactly you wanted to do. All you knew was that, you wanted to start your own business yes. and have impact. Yes. But you had no idea what you wanted to no do. No idea. How long did it take you to, to land on an idea, you know, and what did you do to get there? You know, um, I looked around, right? So, you know, and it's funny when you think about it, lots of people will say, well, why did you do tech? You know, and because I didn't really understand it. It wasn't my background. So I couldn't, I didn't understand it at the time. But all I did was very basic. In fact, someone just said to me, you know, and business entrepreneurship is about solving a problem that people have, right? So look around you, look around and live. And, I, you know, I wasn't working. So I had the time to drive around, to speak to people, to ask questions and really sophisticated way of saying market research, right? <laughs> but that was what I was basically doing and really trying to understand the environment which I was in and to see what I could do. And what was really, really clear was that Zambia was a net importer of food, so a lot of supermarket shelves were packed with a lot of foreign food and we didn't have a lot of local manufacturing for no reason whatsoever, because we, we grow a lot of food, 
year on mm. year, Zambia grows maize, corn, and wheat, yet we export it in its raw form. And why were we not doing more, right? Um, and then also other things I looked at is that we're a very young population. So young people are much more open to trying different things. As we know, they're much more open to social media, to being influenced by different tools. And we're very becoming very urban. So I'm, I, my, I was speaking to a, a young urban population now as opposed to a, a very rural population. So the offering was actually, in my mind, much easier, right? So for me, I just thought I need to look at something which is convenient, which doesn't take a lot of time and which is affordable. And I knew I wanted to do food. And that's how I began, began to think about the instant noodle brand. And that's how I started Easy, Easy Noodles and Java Foods. In talking about starting Java Foods, yeah. you know, we can't have that conversation without talking about fine, access to finance and, yeah. you know, the ability yeah. to scale. So how did you fund you? You finally hear your home, you do your market research, you, you land on manufacturing, you land on a product. How do you? How did you fund, fund it? it? Yeah, and it's a really, really important question, particularly for African women entrepreneurs. Um, right. So remember, I had worked for sixteen years, and I had worked in quite senior capacities. So I had saved quite a bit of money, and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it. So basically, to kickstart everything, I I bootstrapped myself. And remember, I was living at home, so my personal expenses were very few. But you tend to do certain things in order for you to achieve an end because it wasn't the most comfortable to go back at my age, I was in my mid-30s, to go live with my parents. I hadn't lived with my parents since I was like 20 or something. But I was trying to achieve something. It definitely kept my expenses down and I had the savings. And the savings actually helped me do the initial uh, rollout uh, to go and uh, do market research. It helped me uh, find suppliers. I, it funded a trip to China. You know, it funded my first office space for a few months, things like that. And then when I finally was able to say I have proved maybe proof of concept is maybe a maybe too, it's too deep. I think when I, let's say that I finally got the business plan up and running, I then went to friends and family who knew or who believed in me. And maybe they didn't believe in the idea 100%, but they felt that, okay, we know that Monica is not going to take our money and go and buy a Mercedes, that she right. will try her hardest to roll this out. It sounds like she's passionate and committed and she's going to run it. So it wasn't that I was going to sit in Nigeria, still work for Dangote and kind of have a business. I had left Dangote. I was living in Zambia and I was going to run this business. So I think for that, it was able, I was able then to convince friends and family to, you know, to fund, to put a little bit of money in. So I had my first angel investors come in in 2013. Um, mm. Some of them, of course, I mean, I, I was a little bit more ambitious about the business and about the markets. Um, so I think people had a lot, um, felt that they would get their money back quicker and it hasn't turned out like that. I mean, um, just the way things are in Africa, things take a lot longer than we anticipate. But it was def it's definitely, um, that was the start. But what I did realize very quickly that I couldn't walk into a bank and finance my business. I, I mean, nobody, first of all, I wasn't even qualified to run the business here in Zambia. People were like, you want to do what? You want to sell noodles? What are those? Who's going to eat them? And how are you going to pay this debt? Okay, no, come bring your property here. And then you, I'll only give you $60,000. And I was like, what is 60? I can buy only two vans with $60,000. And the disappointment that we don't have financial institutions here, here who are able to back young business, startup businesses with funding that they need in the currencies that they need as well. And at the right interest rates, uh, you know, you just couldn't get it. So I actually took a lot of money out of my, my U.S. Account, account. I got a loan using my U.S. bank. And that's how I also funded my working capital. But I was lucky to because I, at least I had income still coming in from the U.S. And that was how I was able to do it. Not everybody is that lucky. You know, it's very, it is, it's very difficult to, to run a business when you have no cash. And, you know, in the early days, you, you need to understand how you're going to get paid. Maybe you're going to, you're paid three months later, but your rent is due every month. Your workers need to be paid every month. Your statutory obligations are due every month. So matching your expenses and your income in the beginning never is easy. So you kind of, you do need that buffer. And we just don't have enough of that VC, that softer money to help startups grow. 
and particularly for women and something I really try to advocate now and try to help arrange and organize. And I, we really hope in the next few years that we'll start seeing a difference is that we really need to support women-run businesses. It is much harder for women to get access to capital at the same level with the same idea than men. You know, you would walk out of the banker's office and say, well, he gave me $10,000. Be rest assured that your, your, the male partner got 20 with longer, with better terms. And they probably gave, they threw in a guarantee, a working capital facility. And because you didn't know to ask that, but they didn't, they didn't even try to offer it to you. So they treat you right. differently, you know? So now we really are looking for those funders who understand the limitations that women have. Uh, it's, and it's not limitations in terms of the business, but limitations in, in products. Like what financial instruments should I be using today to fund the business to grow? So really we're pushing uh, financial institutions and funders to think differently, to really support the growth of women businesses at, at early stage. You know, it's the, at early and mid because it's, you yeah. still have that crisis at mid stage as well. And, you know, this is, this is what we're talking about. And I definitely went through it. But be rest assured as well, it's not just access to capital, which is an issue. It's ac- okay. access to technical expertise, you know, to try to get... Um, that consultant to spend time with you to build the machine or to train your staff is not as easy as you think. And it costs you so much more and it's much harder to even know that you need it. You know, Oh, I didn't really know you could use uh, electricity, someone to kind of monitor your, your power consumption. So you save, you know, so if you are, have access to technical expertise to make your business more efficient earlier on, you do much better. So for many businesses, women-run businesses, even myself, you spend your first three or four years burning money because right. you're, you're just running the business the best way you know how, when actual fact, you could make a lot of savings if you do things differently. And we need many more people to support us, to understand those, to say, actually, don't use an overdraft now for this. Use this kind of facility that's cheaper and you only have to pay in six months. Those are the sort of things we need to be looking at. We talk about it and celebrate, you know, first mover advantages in 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 business, you know, and and I, I wanted us to kind of talk about first mover challenges. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was really funny, not funny, you know, haha, but funny that that you that before easy noodles, people in Zambia didn't know what instant noodles. Yes. As a Nigerian, that's shocking. But that's because you have had noodles for twenty five years. Trust me. Been a challenge in itself. Oh my god! You see, then I should have made biscuits. I should have done. You know, when you think about it, you know, sometimes being a bit too innovative or too ahead of the market is also costly. You know, we did know we needed to Hmm. solve that. We needed a convenient food because we have we have traditional foods which take a long time to cook, and then you have to eat them with something, and you just don't have that time. So we knew we needed to solve something. But we assumed that the market would know how to cook it, would know what it is. You know, we have made that assumption and incorrectly because they had never they had seen it on a shelf, but it was never marketed to Zambians. It was always for expats. So that was the first mistake assumption I made. The second one was they looked at it and it looked like a very nice biscuit, a a really nice, you know, (laughs) and so big. Right. (laughs) And then you say to them, put it in water for three minutes. And they just don't understand it. Even the way we used to teach people were like, we said, cook in boiling water. Because it wasn't about boiling. Africans cook food. They needed to know they had cooked something. So we used to say that in all our advertising, cook in, in, in boiling water for three minutes. You know, so simple things. We, we quickly realized we had to do a lot more speaking to people. And, but in a language they understood. And we kept it simple because I can tell right. you, I only had two flavors for two years or two or three years. I had beef and chicken. Learning from my big brothers at Indomie who had chicken in different types for many years. And the Indomie guy <laughs> said to me, Monica, give the people what they want. You know, chicken works, give it to them. So for, for like three or four years, I had beef and chicken only. And my competitors, Maggie and the rest, had seafood, they had all these really funky things, but people weren't interested. I come from a landlocked country. People have never heard of a prawn. 
you know? So you're not going to buy prawn-flavored <laughs> wow. noodles. And if you bring prawn-flavored noodles, and that's the only flavor you have, you're not going to sell. It is a fact. So we also learned that. So we learned that, uh, you know, keep it simple. Give people what they want in terms of flavor profile. Because whilst we're, we are very adventurous, we're also very simple in our taste. So you can give me a spicy chicken, but it's still chicken. You know, so those are, some, but it took me a while to learn this and I lost a lot of money, you know, so <laughs> I tell you, it was, uh, it's, 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 I can laugh about it now. And, um, but it's definitely been a learning and, um, we, we, you must always remember the markets you serve. And I, I, I am here in Zambia because I fundamentally believe we want to make brands for ourselves and not much, not just for Zambia, but for my brothers in Malawi, people in Zimbabwe, we're very similar but we must be standing by our brands. But what do we want? You know, so let's not get someone to de- uh, sort of dictate what we should have. Let's just create uh, flavor profiles, food products as well that we want. You know, so it's, a, it's been an interesting in my second uh, product that we do a cereal. And I remember and we fortify it because we really focus on nutrition now. I remember someone said, but why don't you just do a granola Mm. bar? Like, you know, put some peanuts together. And I was like, because that actually isn't what people want and understand. For mothers, uh, the best way in which we have found, the best way in which to transmit nutrition or to let them understand nutrition was through a porridge. It's something they've always known since they were a child, how to prepare it. And they understand that if my child eats a porridge every morning, it is good for them and they start their day well. Again, it was understanding the market much better. And this is not loyal. I'm not a lawyer now. You can hear it. It's how you've shifted from doing, (laughs) you know, uh, transactions and corporate transactions. But the market taught me. I didn't go, I didn't do an MBA. I have learned everything I'm telling you today by virtue of what I've learned from the market. And again, I didn't know anything, but I definitely opened my eyes and my ears because I listened to what people wanted. I asked questions and you then deliver as best as you can. Sometimes it's really hard. Uh, sometimes we fail, you know, and we, we, but you, you, you push on. So I think it's been a, such an interesting transition. I think the, the question people often ask me is, how did you, when, how did you know it was the right time? I didn't. I was, I was already in my mid-30s. Uh, now I think it's great if you can do the transition earlier because if it fails, you can get back into employment. Now I think it'll be really, I'll be quite an old person to employ. I've been out of work for eight years. So I'm in my, you know, um, sort of mid to uh, my early to mid forties. So, you know, it has to work now, right? I have no options because I can't get a job. So now the, the passion is making sure we build and we scale, uh, to making sure that we honor our mission of, um, you know, affordable nutrition. We also honor our vision of building brands that people love and products that people love. And that's what that's occupies my time now. I, I am, it's uh, I'm passionate about it because my two feet are in it. But also, I believe in it now. I believe that you can actually achieve. I can be, my, a mini Dangote in my little way. <laughs> I'll never be as big as him. But I have. I, I never say never. Oh, amen. You know, but I, I definitely think we have. What has definitely come out is that the impact has is there. You know, I if if everything fell apart today, at least I was able to say I built a brand, brands that people loved from scratch. I was able to participate in the manufacturing sector of my country. I was able to participate in policy decisions and discussions. I was able to mentor other women, uh, provide some guidance on how to grow a business. So that at least up to year eight, I can say that I can do that. Yeah. That's that's awesome, and and you've also recently become a mom. Yeah. How does that dynamic, you know, influence how you you work now? How does that how does that come together? So you know, I was I waited for a long time. So I'm a I'm a mom in my very late late mom. I can say that, and that's because I kind of felt at every stage I, that I, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm gonna get get around to it, but life happens. Life moves on. I mean, you become so busy, and I literally had to step off my little bike and say, Monica, put yourself first, put your family first. And that's when I decided to have my child. And I actually had to take four months off to have her. I had to leave the country and have her because I, but I, I, but you can do it. That's what I think that's my lesson is that 
it doesn't fall apart. It doesn't, I mean, it's not going to be perfect. You will leave a team which you've built or you will find someone to sit in your stead. But women, particularly um, CEOs who are so afraid that everything will stop running when you step, get off the bike for yourself, because this is, I did this not for Java, for myself personally. I was able to have her, I was b- pregnant running a business. I was able to take four months off to have her and still kind of look into the business, able to take another two months off of maternity leave and able to still be a mom through it. And we know we've put up boundaries. I'm not still trying to find that balance, you know, and I know many, many women who are going to listen to this are also still struggling with the balance. But I think don't beat yourself up. You'll find a balance which works for you. Um, I am so grateful to another great thing to be back at home. Because I think if I was living in the West, I I think it would be a very different story when you have, you're able to have infrastructure and support in form of your, your relatives, your parents, um, your, uh, you know, friends, uh, nannies, you know, uh, it is very, very helpful. We are able to achieve so much more because we have the infrastructure. Never take that for granted. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I know that you're very passionate about, you know, growing female entrepreneurs, you, you've alluded to that, you know, and, and you do a lot in terms of advocating for them. And I, and I wondered, you know, what, what do you feel like, what do you see, how do you see the landscape now compared to, to five years ago, you know, eight years ago? Um, have you, are we seeing any shifts? Are we seeing, you know, anything? Have we seen any improvement for, for female entrepreneurs in Zambia, in Africa? And, and can you also talk to us about the, I think it's the Cartier initiative that you work sure. on. You know, that was very interesting mm-hmm. to me. If you can talk about that in this conversation, that would be helpful. Absolutely. So I think we are definitely seeing progress. I think we're seeing progress by virtue of the fact that uh, we have more women who are exposed and educated, more women who are self-financing and can fund their own ideas, and more women who are starting small and are scaling up definitely seeing that across the continent. What we're also seeing now is uh, a lot of, uh, not a lot, but definitely people who are willing to fund uh, women-run ventures and businesses at um, early stage, at mid-stage. It's the right thing to do. You're also seeing a lot more conversation around it. So you're seeing, you can go to conferences and people are asking us the question, how can we support women-run businesses a lot more. And I think that wasn't there when I started, right? I, I, I mean, I just took it that when the bank manager said no, that the idea was bad. But actually, he said no because he didn't understand it. And he wasn't trained to understand um, the issues that women face or even not even trained to understand maybe particular sectors. You know how like five years ago, nobody understood tech, right? And they were, But now everyone wants to right. fund tech. Right. So I think sometimes it's just really um, about having it's about time. And we're at a time a really. And if I can encourage women to step up, because this is the time when we now need to engage more and tell them this is what we require. This is the support that we need and call people out for doing things which don't support us. You know, there's a lot of talk, right? There will always be a lot of talk. Oh, we this is what we do for women. We want 40 percent, blah, blah, blah. Great. But where is the action plan? And are are you carrying the women along right. in the action plan? Right. So you cannot achieve um, more women in business if you're not talking to women in business to say, how can we get over to understand the hurdles and how to get old, over them? A, a very simple one is in this country is collateral. For in, instance, a lot of very strong market women who are now scaling their businesses to have, you know, brick and mortar stores actually own a lot of property with their spouse. And in order for them to get collateral, they need the, their spouse to consent. Or And before, the banker wouldn't even talk to them about it. Would actually say, oh, I need your husband to sign off the paper. If it was the man, he wouldn't have asked the wife to sign off the paper, right? So now really appreciating that this is Africa. A lot of assets are held either in family uh, or with your spouse. 
So how do we deal with that? Because we can't disenfranchise a great business just because of an aspect of, you know, how can we manage this better? And I think there's a lot of discussion around that, around also using um, movable assets as collateral now, which in, and this is very new to Zambia about and movable assets. I mean, vehicles, um, right. livestock, mm-hmm. which is a big a new thing here. But if you look in some um, some countries like um, where cattle is worth a lot, Botswana, right? So she will have 5,000 heads of cattle and you're telling her she doesn't have assets? Why? You know, so I think we're seeing uh, definitely uh, trends where they're much more, a much more inclusive approach to bring women into grow economies because they can't, now people are like, well, we can't win if half the team are not playing. But, uh, and also, which is also really exciting, is well, now we're seeing that you can fund your business through competitions. It's very big in the U.S., by the way. Um, I was in the U.S. two years ago, and I was speaking to a, a female entrepreneur, and she was like, yeah, you know, I've been running my business for six years. And every year I entered a business plan competition. I entered something, and I won $5,000 here, $10,000 there. And it funded research and development, marketing costs, etc., Think about it. Africa hasn't really had all that those the, the, that competitive base, but now in the last two or three years, we've right. seen a huge difference. So, which brings me to Cartier, which we're really grateful for because it's actually longer than two years. It's actually been around for almost, I think, eight years. I've been a, a jury member for the past two years now. That's two years, mm-hmm. and really. Uh, I love being a part of it because what we're seeing is so much innovation coming out of the continent. It is, um, it is clearly, it's a, a, a worldwide uh, award and mentorship and networking opportunity for f- female entrepreneurs and business owners. So basically you put your, you pitch your business, um, they look for social impact. They look for innovation. They look for commitment to what they call the Cartier values and, I've been last year was my first time, and so I, the businesses were great, were new, were different. This year, the businesses were fantastic. I really enjoyed my my, my judging this year. Um, we see high caliber women, um, and that's why I said, why do we think that we don't have those high caliber women on the continent? Mm. Because we do, and now we're seeing all of them professionals now stepping out. We had a doctor who was a doctor for many years and now is creating some kind of business out of what she has learned out of the medical profession, really, you know, sort of sitting on a need. We need to sort this out. How can I, because I saw this when I was a doctor and now I think it's the best way to do this is through a business. So really great things happening with the Cartier Initiative. And I think they'll be very happy if they heard that we're (laughs) promoting it. (laughs) Because the session is open again this year. So uh, I think for women who are interested, um, it is on every continent. Um, I only sit on the sub-Saharan Africa jewelry. But if you're in Africa and you are very interested to find out more about the competition, it's $100,000 uh, every year with mentorship, um, uh, with coaching, uh, with from people who are successful entrepreneurs, as well as INSEAD as well. So I think it's a really well thought out um, initiative. And now we need to see many more. Right. We need to see to see so we can yeah, build the yeah. capacity. I'll, I'll be sure to put the website in the in the description and the show notes for the episode. Perfect. OK, so on, on a final note, um, I know you sit on multiple boards, you know, um, in Zambia and and beyond. And Java is doing doing really well. And um, of course, you're you're raising little Amara. <laughs> But I still have to. You have, you have yes. your hands full. But but I still have to ask, what's what's next for Monica? What what do you when you you look the next five years? Maybe I, I always say five years, but it could be more. But what's next? For so you? actually, um, what is next for me now is really to really focus. Um, I have I I felt that I have focused less on myself on self care, and I become much more self aware now. I think Amara has definitely helped me do that. And so when I talk about um, self-care, it means I'm going to focus on things which um, I feel bring me value, uh, uh, which mm. achieve the legacy and the vision I want to achieve. You know, when you're building, you're all over the place. Huh? You're, you're, you're here because it gives you profile. It will help you sell a product. None of that now. Now it's really um, doing things with a vision, doing things with focus, and really uh, making sure you don't overstretch yourself because you know you're no you're not helpful to anyone if you're in hospital, right? So now I'm really looking to much more meaningful engagement for my life. 
um, to really be a, a very active and um, a parent and set an example because I have a girl child, huh? And what happens, right. what I do for my life, what the what I'm trying to achieve is really important for her, right? So it's not all financial, though financial is very important, but I think it's also having the balance, you know, instilling good values and really really focusing on what what is meaningful. So I think in my next five years is that, which then streamlines me into to to really enjoying life and really fo- uh, like working with people who share the same vision. So for me, I still, I really want to push nutrition, uh, ensuring we have affordable nutrition for people on the continent. I still want to build corporate governance um, in Zambia and on, on the continent if possible meaning that we want to have strong businesses which have good corporate government structures because in actual fact, and we all know the truth, is that you cannot win if you don't have a strong team. A strong team means you have to have good corporate governance structures. You know, you have to have structures which make sense, which allow for checks and balances, which allow for inclusive growth and ideas. And actually, that's what corporate governance does. And so I hope I will continue to be a part of that. And I hope I'll continue to impact on my continent. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Monica. That was really great. Thank you. Yeah, not at all. That was Monica Musunda, founder and CEO, Java Foods, a business committed to offering affordable and nutritious food options, not only in Zambia, but across Southern Africa. You know, in discussing how to promote high growth female entrepreneurship on the continent, policy changes are required. To access finance, there's always a requirement for collateral security. Now, how is a woman who is not allowed to own land meant to bring collateral? Things are changing, but they're not changing fast enough. We celebrate people like Monica who are using their position and their voice to push for a more level playing field for all business owners in Africa. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you're not already subscribed, we welcome you to subscribe to African Business Stories on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts. We're also available on all other platforms where you listen to your podcast. This is Akego Koye, and you have been listening to African Business Stories.